0: Today we have a former colleague of mine uh, in the Financial Times, Tim Burt, who, as he himself wrote, went to the dark side um, and had become a public relations man. He wrote a, a book with the self-deprecating title of The Dark Art uh, last year, I think it came out, um, which is well worth reading. Uh, it's well worth reading because it's very clear about what's happening to um, public relations, especially. Of public relations, um, and Tim is a who was media editor of the FT for for a number of years, and is now in set up a business of his own with another ex-FT guy knows a good deal and thinks a good deal about it. But also, and one of the reasons why it's very good that he's here is that, uh, as we've frequently said, at the Reuters Institute that that news uh, your our. Profession journalism is not really explicable, properly explicable, without um, understanding what's happening in public relations. Um, Journalists tend to to say public relations is all crap, it's all spin, Uh, we talk about dogs and lampposts, but to understand what we do, we have to understand what public relations does and, of course, vice versa. And just as we um, pretend or actually scorn it, Actually, we become more and more dependent on it and use it more and more. So it's extremely timely that we have Tim. Who we're very grateful for taking some time off to come and talk to us. He'll talk um, for about half an hour and then open up to a lively discussion. Again, many thanks, Tim. <coughs>
1: Thank you, John. Um, so my name is Tim Burton, as John said. We had a shared history at the Financial Times where I was for 16 years before moving into corporate and financial public relations. Uh, And so when John and James first approached me it was can you help uh, the fellows uh, with an insight into the changing nature of the relationship between the media and the corporate world and the functions that public relations plays uh, in that relationship. So it's commonly called the dark side. And and people who cross over to the dark side are kind of not quite toxic when it comes to their former colleagues but um, uh, are seen to have embraced a a different part of the information industry and so the part uh, the point of today's chat and and my comments is really to give you a window onto that industry and and how the companies that we act for and represent uh, feel about the media and the way they feel about the media in a changing uh, digital environment in particular so um, I will um, walk and talk, if I may, at the start. Some of you may be familiar with this man. He is Edward Bernays, commonly called the Grandfather of Public Relations, and Bernays uh, was an American who uh, was an official in the Woodrow Wilson administration at the end of the First World War, and served on the Committee for Information and Propaganda. And he uh, decided, when at the, at the end of the First World War, how can I monetize? this knowledge and, and basically started the first corporate agencies focused on changing opinion, using some of the tactics and tools from wartime propaganda to deal really with three industries, tobacco, uh, the railroads, uh, and cosmetics. And, and but his basic philosophy was, can companies uh, make themselves more desirable uh, influence purchase decisions among their consumers by the use of propaganda and propaganda tools. And he's written a famous book, which is uh, sometimes called The Bible of Our Industry, about how to use those sorts of tactics, uh, really born out of wartime propaganda, in the commercial world. And and he started the first agencies, and our industry really exploded uh, in the 1920s initially, in the US, and then such tactics were adopted uh, in, in Western Europe and, and more recently in other countries. So so that was the genesis of uh, how do we manage reputation, and the media was seen as one of the routes to market in managing reputations for these large corporations. So if that was what it was in the 1920s, where are we today? This is um, the total value of the communications industry. These are figures from WPP, the largest marketing and advertising company in the world, for the whole industry. So it's an $840 billion a year industry in, uh, in all forms of communications. Uh, and the, the, the field in which uh, we operate, we occupy, is actually the smallest of them. Uh, so public relations is only $10 billion a year. And that, that sounds like a lot of money, but it's it's actually a drop in the ocean in terms of what corporates are turning over. We we have a client, uh, a large Japanese company um, which has a hundred billion of revenue a year. So ten billion for a whole industry is, is pretty small. And you'll see that public relations, uh, compared with advertising, you know, is it, a fraction of the sum. Uh, and that's the single largest. Um, uh, area of the communications industry, but increasingly this uh, this direct and specialist communications, and this is where digital is increasingly changing the intermediation between companies and consumers, or companies and audiences, is is really growing fast. But I thought it would be useful just to put the, the value of our sector into some sort of context. So that 10 billion cuts down again Into these different segments, and all of these different segments interact in different ways with the media. Uh, And and, you know, we work particularly in in corporate and financial, but we also do crisis uh, 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 and public, political, and regulatory communications, which is a much bigger issue now than it was even ten years ago because of the ability of regulators, whether in Brussels or in D.C. or in national territories, to impact <coughs> on the way that companies and corporations can manage uh, their reputations. So traditionally, uh, in, in our ability to secure work, to, to help companies manage their reputations and deal with media engagement, it, it was a pretty feudal structure. And this is a kind of representation of the feudal system. And, and, and by that I mean um, that uh, if we, the agencies, the people down here at the bottom of the chain, depended on the loyalty of the businesses they acted for to keep paying them, retain mandates, uh, and, and to uh, refer additional business to them. Uh, and it's patronage because if you have business patrons as a public relations company, they help build uh, visibility for the work you're doing. And interestingly, the feudal system, as we call it in the public relations world, has become interdependent. So that business leaders now depend or have loyalty to particular agencies to help explain their leadership differential or what makes them more effective communicators with the media industry than perhaps some of their peers. And such is the churn of business leaders now. The, the average CEO of a Fortune 500 company is four years. Um, they rely, in turn, on their public relations companies to help position them for whatever their next role is going to be. Uh, and a lot of that reputation depends on how you sell uh, the narrative behind that individual into the media. And so it's uh, the patronage business really defined who were more successful public relations agencies and who were less successful right up, I would say, until, until the early 2000s. I, I think this is, uh, it might be Cecil Rose, or someone handing out land gifts, but the way that uh, mandates are handed out to public relations agencies are often seen in the gift of, of chairmen of, of large companies. And what were they paying for? Um, and this is really where, where our industry <coughs> connects, or interfaces, or bumps into yours. What those business leaders, and it's the same of politicians, were paying for was the ability of the public relations world to manage uh, media engagement. And and for most of the evolution of the modern media industry, that engagement was what we call a a push to media engagement. The media industry, up until the last five or 10 years, has been very linear. And linear in that uh, companies decide what they're going to announce and when. Uh, They would issue a press release. They'd hold a press conference. Journalists would turn up. They'd make notes. They'd go back. They'd talk to a few analysts. Uh, They'd go out to lunch, come back three hours later, um, uh, write something, 6 o'clock in the evening, go home, forget about it, wouldn't see it again until it appears in print the next day. And it was very much a kind of linear relationship. And it was the editors and the sub-editors who decided what the reader received, i.e. were pushing Uh, the media story to the audience, Uh, and that linear uh, relationship for companies and for public relations agencies was quite easy to manage and was quite predictable. The the cadence of the news day was the same for newspapers all around the world. Uh, And that was uh, the way we helped companies engage with the media and what they were those clients were basically paying for was an element of promotion and protection of their reputation you know promoting a company or an individual or a political party about what made them different uh, and how they could tell their narrative in a thoughtful way the protection element is all about uh, defense in a crisis so how do we when we're coming under pressure and scrutiny uh, ensure that we, can, we come across as, as good corporate citizens or as people, uh, individuals of authenticity um, who have something strong and, and believable to say. Business leaders want to have leadership status conferred upon them, and, and in that leadership status, they want to be thought of as premium business people, you know, that not just run of the mill. Uh, guys who are uh, just there for their executive remuneration. And all of this is, is trying to say, we can offer you a degree of control about how the media covers this company. And that degree of control is really about how do we deliver a reputation credit to a business, or an enterprise, or an industry as a whole, or to individuals. Um, and in a time of what is perceived to be media hostility, towards business generally, uh, is, it, is how difficult is it to offer that degree of reputation and credit? Uh, one of the other things that companies are increasingly paying for is, how do we avoid getting lumped together with other players in our sector who may be guilty of misconduct? We're seeing this right now in the fashion industry, following the disaster in Bangladesh where some companies have, have been guilty of uh, uh, sourcing materials from that particular facility, there are other fashion retailers who, who have one goal only, is to avoid being anywhere in the coverage, and to, to avoid being seen as some, uh, an organization which uh, utilizes those very cheap uh, s- uh, suppliers who, who uh, don't maintain proper workplace standards. And that's where kind of the promotion aspect tips over into crisis management. How do you protect a company or an individual's uh, reputation during times of crisis? And uh, there is a view, and I, I use the phrase in the book I wrote, called um, Crisis is the New m Because for our industry, you know, traditionally the really big fees came from mergers and acquisitions. And in a period of downtime for M&A, where the big fees are coming are now in crisis management. And a company will pay almost any price during a crisis for a good reputation. And that more or less way in which the linear relationship with the media worked uh, persisted, uh, even into the early years of the digital uh, economy, up until, I, I would say, 2010. And what happened in 2010 was you saw a confluence of crises uh, in the business world which really uh, undermined uh, media sentiment towards general corporate practice. Media sentiment we perceived was already shaky post Lehman's and Bear Stearns and the whole financial collapse. But what was interesting about the crises of 2010, which BP was the most visible, um, but also the massive Toyota recall, Goldman Sachs was in the stocks, uh, potential was, was starting to melt down. What was interesting was that the communication response in all of those crises made things worse rather than better and the the media tolerance and the idea of companies getting a fair hearing really evaporated. And it evaporated partly because of the immediacy of digital uh, commentary. Uh, Some of you may remember the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Uh, Must be more than 20 years ago. And, And that was one of the big oil spills of the analog age. This was the first really bad oil spill of the digital age. And the difference was, with Exxon Valdez, it took two weeks for the pictures to get back from Prince William Sound. Uh, when this happened, you know, uh, the pictures were there instantly. Uh, and the ability of the company to keep up, and its advisors, with the sheer volume and range of, uh, of coverage, and not necessarily by traditional media outlets, but entirely new platforms was beyond the control of normal what we call reputation management, uh, and that really changed the nature of uh, business anxiety about whether they would ever get a fair hearing in future uh, from the media in a digital world. And BP became really totemic in terms of how to lose a reputation. and. Um, you may recall the the pictures from the ocean floor of the oil gushing out. And, and BP, and we were the firm I was with at the time, was acting for BP, um, made these pictures available to academics uh, at MIT and elsewhere in order to see can we measure the volume of oil uh, out there. But as soon as they made the pictures available to academics, they were everywhere. Uh, and, and so they had to make them available to the media, which is something they would never have done in the past. And so when you, uh, these, these pictures were on American television for 64 days until the oil was capped. And, and I don't remember, you may recall Tony Haywood with a very wooden performance before Congress. When when the Fox uh, uh, live stream went from the hearing, they had this juxtaposed in the top right hand corner of the screen, just to ram home that this guy is testifying, um, but the the oil is still gushing. And then, of course, you know, when Hayward went home uh, for a break during the crisis um, and was snapped uh, on his yacht. And that was immediately uploaded, and was uploaded before the company knew anything about it. You saw these kind of cartoons, which made his position pretty untenable. The other interesting thing was that the company uh, went to war uh, with the White House, and 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 you know you had Obama saying that had he had the power to sack Haywood, he would have done, uh, and what it exposed was that the company was completely unprepared for the visceral and hostile nature of the coverage uh, of the spill itself. Had had the spill and the the well been capped after three days, the outcome might have been different. But after three months, uh, it was just very difficult to control. And as an example of the media uh, chase around the story. You may recall that at one point there was an attempt to cap the well with a, a shot of tyres and golf balls, and, and the, the, the head of communications at BP had golfing magazines on the phone saying what brand of balls are being (laughs) fired into the world. And so the reputation management exercise was just of a different volume and tone than any company had ever seen before. (laughs) And um, if you want to think about the cost of this, I was advising Toyota at the same time on their recall of 8 million cars. And there was a parallel with BP and that these were uh, routine disasters, you might say. There are recalls in the car industry the whole time, there are oil spills the whole time, uh, just most of them we don't hear about. Um, but in a digital age, the ability of a story to jump the tracks from being a local story or a mundane recall into an existential threat to the company and the present has really accelerated. And Haywood uh, uh, kind of blamed uh, everyone else but BP for the disaster. Uh- Whereas Toyota um, kind of fessed up straight away, even though they thought, this is really American motorists stepping on the wrong pedals. Um, they, they would never have said that. And instead, they said, the customer is right, we're wrong, uh, and he survived, and Hayward didn't, uh, which is a real lesson in, in accepting some of the pressures on companies now. In the book, I, I talk about this at some length, but I think it's, it's relevant to this to, to what, how companies feel about the media scrutiny they're now under. And anyone who's done you know, um, bereavement counseling or courses will know about the five stages of grief, but it's very pertinent to the way companies now feel about media scrutiny. So Tony Hayward, you could apply all of this to him. You could apply the same thing to James Murdoch over the phone hacking saga, but there's denial. You know, This is not happening to me. This is Halliburton and Transocean's problem in the case of Hayward anger, he felt really cross that the, the whole uh, reputation of VP was on the line over this, and anger that he was getting no credit for having put safety at the whole uh, center of his strategy for uh, managing VP. The bargaining phase, and this is what all companies do, you know, is, is part of the legal settlement. If we offer this, will you do that? Um, depression when none, none of that works and acceptance you know, when it comes to resignation uh, and that the company had to sell off $40 billion of assets in order to uh, create a legal fund to, to pay the compensation. Uh, part of that grief is directed at the media. The grieving process on the part of executives about media tactics has, has, has never been as tangible as, as it is now. And I would really recommend you get a copy of a good column that Peter Kahn, who's the former chairman of Dow Jones, wrote a couple of years ago about the new tone of media in a digital age. And Peter talks about the problem of pack journalism and that in a in a digital age the media now hunts as a pack. Uh, and and you've seen you saw this with VP, saw it with the News Corps scandal that um, they hone in uh, on one area and really throw all their resources at it. And this issue of conflict and context, companies feel that it's very difficult in the heat of a battle, a reputation battle, to get the right context across because there is no time uh, uh, or willingness. They think of the media to take uh, their side or to take their views into account. this exaggerated tendency towards pessimism speaks for itself. You know, a, a good news story never sells, but a bad news story can easily make the splash. And, and I'm not going to rehearse all of these, but you will be familiar with the, 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 the issue of what makes a story sexy, uh, and, and increasingly, um, opinion creeping into news uh, and becoming more polemical. And this, this representation is just to also say you know, that the media itself finds itself under enormous pressure uh, of, of, of being on this conveyor belt of constantly filing, updating, posting blogs, tweets, uh, engaging with social media in a way that they, they never happened before. Uh, you know, 100 years ago, when I was on the Lex column of the FT, <laughs> you had eight hours in which to produce 250 words of finely honed copy, and you'd speak to the company, you'd go and speak. Analysts, you kind of go away and sit in a dark room, and then you, you produce your 250 finally honed words. The pressures that the media is now under to compete and be relevant in, in the digital age, companies think is leading to a rise in what they call risk journalism. And risk journalism is the willingness, according to the corporate world, of journalists being ready to take risks to be first with the story. There's always been a culture of scoops, that's not new, but what is different, uh, the corporate world thinks, is that uh, journalists will stick something up online without ever checking in the knowledge that if they have to correct it that's part of the narrative. Uh, and so if you are a company uh, which is exposed to algo trading. 60% of all share trading is now done algorithmically in nanoseconds. Um, and AP or somebody else pops up a story, which then turns out to be wrong. The damage can be done, and and so this concern of risk journalism is very prevalent. And we saw it last week with AP. Uh, when AP's Twitter account was hacked and and there was this thing about the bombings of the White House and the Dow went down 1%. And some some people lost a lot of money before there was the correction. And so the impact of what corporates call risk journalism is very, very tangible. And and all of this is creating what we call the reputation gap. And the reputation gap is that the media is more willing to take risks and is less trusted than it was before by corporations. And really, since the financial crisis broke, business anxiety at how their reputations can be shredded in nanoseconds in a digital world. has really heightened. And so where we play as companies, and many of us are former journalists, in the public relations world, is how do we manage the reputation gap? Uh, And and that is changing the nature of public relations. And the public relations world is really saying you have no uh, option about communicating or not. Um, The no comment, option doesn't fly in a world where your uh, credit rating, your share price, uh, the the reputation of your leadership team uh, can be affected so rapidly in different territories around the world. And and the, the, the bottom line is why you have to communicate is we think that reputation is the biggest intangible asset any company has. You know, goodwill, generally thought of as an accounting term, it's really goodwill is a reputation term. About companies with a good reputation, tend to be able to have. A higher premium on their pricing, they tend to be able to attract better people. They have better share prices, higher credit rating, and so the reputation premium is now what the public relations industry is trying to to deliver. And and the impact of BP uh, 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 and the lesson of the BP story is you can't create reputation credit in the middle of a crisis. You know, by then it's too late. So a lot of the sort of services that public relations companies now try and sell is, we can help build a degree of reputation credit with the media during peacetime, which will give you some protection when the inevitable crisis breaks. And those reputations have never been more vulnerable than than in a digital world. And you remember we talked about, or I talked about the old push uh, system of media engagement where we now talk about the push system has been replaced by a pull system. And the pull system is where the audience, of whatever variety it is, is pulling the media to them. They're not waiting for the paper to drop through the letterbox the next day on any sort of platform they want. And so the audience is self-editing in a way that uh, previously was done by the media itself. And, and the poor uh, system of media consumption is only going to intensify with increasing digitization. And you know, uh, 70% of all I- internet traffic is going to be video uh, by next year. That's why companies say, well, why is a, a, a business reporter from a print title bringing on a camera? Why are people tweeting from news conferences? Um, and it's all about uh, the immediacy of this world where people are consuming media on these multiple platforms, many of which you've got in front of you. And this is changing uh, the dynamic of how companies and individuals who are finding themselves in media scrutiny are saying, "Do how do we utilize these platforms, and how do we manage our reputations in a world where the old linear relationships don't exist anymore. And I was saying to James earlier, actually we're right in a point of transition where no one knows the answer. Everyone is experimenting with different forms of media management, but um, the jury's out on which one will be the standard. And so what we are saying to companies is you've just kind of got to get used to the digital concertina, which is the immediacy of how you try and manage your reputation in this environment. And this immediacy is only going to accelerate because of the explosion of digital in all its forms. And um, uh, Google, this is a Google term, uh, they uh, talk about exabytes, five exabytes of data is being added to the information archive out there, if you like. And uh, one exabyte, I always get this wrong, one exabyte is a megabyte followed by 18 zeros. And um, five exabytes is the equivalent of 40,000 years of television. So, so when we are trying to say companies, yes, there is much more scrutiny, and yes, there is much more attention in a digital world, and you have to be faster in responding to it, We have to be able to distinguish between what is white noise and what is just kind of going off into the ether, never to be seen again, and what needs to be managed and what is relevant. And this is requiring what we call new forms of intermediation, new forms of intermediation between us as the representatives of companies and the media world, and are there ways of going around the media to connect with audiences in different ways. And and the other thing that companies, political parties, everyone's woken up to now, who formerly had that linear relationship with the media, is we now live in this digital matrix where we should reach these people direct, Um, because all of these different constituents are themselves media. They are all broadcasting, tweeting, commenting about the news of the day. And so, uh, us in the public relations industry are trying to say which relationships can be managed and how can they be managed effectively. And this again is creating a market opportunity for us, but it's creating anxiety among corporates saying, how do we how do we defend ourselves? And uh, interestingly, we can say we're the best at what we do, but the, in the media eyes. Company PR professionals are right at the bottom of the uh, ranking of sourcing uh, in this survey of, of this is of financial journalists. So what this means is, when the company CEO CEO speaks, um, uh, they better be right and they better have their narrative right. The other important lesson is that the media is now having greater access, at this people like us other journalists as as sources of of stories. Uh, Greater access to all of these sources of stories than ever before. So for us, trying to manage relationships and reputations, how do we engage with um, uh, these different uh, outlets? Uh, We've just had a Fortune 500 company say, create for us a global database of influencers. Uh, Who are these people who we now need to bring inside the tent? which are the bloggers, which are the academics, which are the lawyers, who previously we wouldn't have cared about engaging directly, but we now need to because they are increasingly sources for the media about what we're doing. Uh, This is not internationally uh, vanilla, of course, and there are huge international variations in this, hence the the Babel motif. But just to look at some of the differing international behaviour, When we are representing US companies, they are the most exposed to this this digital phenomenon of immediacy uh, and and tweeting from in the middle of interviews sometimes, uh, and because of the value put on having something up first. We've found where we're representing Chinese companies that dealing with the Chinese media, uh, while political coverage is very heavily controlled, business media is completely unregulated. And it's almost as though Chinese business journalists are unleashed by the ability to cover Western companies in a very aggressive way. And so we say to companies, you know, you should expect to be reported whatever you say, even if you think it's off the record. But of course, the, the three T's and the F are self censorship in China, the three T's being Tibet, Tiananmen, and Taiwan, and the F being Falun Gong. So we've got a company that we look after that has a very big business in Taiwan, never gets reported in China. Taxi money is a, an issue that Western companies find difficult, but Chinese journalists tend to be so badly paid that the low level corruption of of paying them to come to press conferences is very deeply embedded. So a Western company holding a press conference in Beijing was surprised to find that all the journalists going off to a little booth to start to collect their taxi money, <laughs> um, which is a euphemism for uh, you're be- being paid to attend the press conference. And the money is somewhat more than a taxi fare. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, The UK uh, media behavior right now clearly is impacted by the hacking scandal and the damaging uh, after effects of that, but also the the, the way UK journalists treat off the record compared to the US, where it's highly stratified and codified, is quite different. So we always say to companies, never say anything in the UK that you don't want to see in print because the meter's always running. Uh, uh, that's not the same in in Germany or Belgium or France or even the Netherlands, where there is a much more uh, respected culture of checking quotes. You know, it's it's entirely legitimate for a German company to ask German media, send me the article. I want to see the article before it's published, and they do. Um, I don't intend to rehearse all of these, but there is a different rules of engagement, again, in, in what people call the garlic belt, and I'm talking about Portugal, Spain, Italy, Greece. Um, so apologies if you're from that; It's not really derogatory. Um, and, and Russia, there are some parallels with China, but I was in Moscow last week with a Western company who's tearing his hair out at, at why um, uh, the Russian media expected to, to be paid to write about their business. Uh, so again, the rules of engagement have to be tailored to all of these different territories, and they're evolving in different ways. And so what we say to people is you, you can't uh, uh, hope to manage and control it in, in the way you might have done with media in the past because the immediacy of digital means that you might have a press conference, this may be down, I don't know, in Singapore. By the time you realize the headline on the Dow Jones story is wrong, um, you know, your share price, you may have an SEC investigation underway over here. So, so the ability to manage reputations after something has gone wrong uh, is very much more difficult. Um, this is creating a different set of <laughs> reputation responses. And most companies say, well, why should I engage at all? If it's this hostile, um, I'll just um, keep, I'll do my earnings calendar work and nothing else. And, and there's a lot of companies who are adopting this tactic, and, but we're saying you can't afford not to communicate in this environment because if you don't manage your reputation, somebody else will. The next response is, is, is uh, the reputation laundry. And this is what Russian oligarchs come to London for. Uh, London has a reputation of the reputation launderette of uh, the Western world. In that, this is true of the government of Sri Lanka, also came to London, Uzbekistan, I think Kazakhstan, uh, paying agencies very large fees to launder their reputations. In other words, to uh, guarantee positive coverage about um, themselves or their countries or their companies. And the reputation laundrette, as we call London, in some uh, particularly when it comes to governments from some parts of the world, uh, is a big area of controversy right now. And there's some <coughs> discussion about whether the sorts of regulations about this sort of activity that pertain in the US should be introduced in the UK, uh, something that's uh, maybe debated in future. This is where we think, actually, you end up, is, is that uh, as, as intermediaries with the media, we're trying to help put together a piece of the jigsaw of the corporate story. Uh, we are dealing with hundreds of companies trying to keep the plates spinning on all the different aspects of how they're trying to communicate. And what we're trying to do with the media is help them navigate this new world. So uh, if you like, uh, that's how we see uh, effective reputation management, as opposed to sticking your head in the sand, or expecting just to be able to launder uh, what you do as a company or an individual. So this is penultimate slide, and this is really to say, so we're advising companies and individuals how to deal with the media. We say, listen, you have to adapt your whole communication strategy to a world of 24-7 immediate rolling news, News is increasingly commoditized, so if you're a big corporation announcing your earnings, all the numbers and the impact on the share price is in the first hours trading after that, the, the, and that's why things are increasingly commoditized and so it's very difficult to control uh, the market uh, impact of, 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 of earnings announcements. Reuters has introduced a computer algorithm in Bangalore which creates news stories out of earnings releases. So they get their flash up first than the blue uh, Bloomberg. So this commoditization of news means that companies say, okay, if I'm going to engage, it's got to be on comments and opinion pages, because that's where there's more value and context uh, and, and more likely to get a fair hearing. We're also saying, you know, you've got to treat news- newspapers as broadcasters. If you do a newspaper interview, they're just as likely to bring cameras along uh, as, a, as any TV show now. And broadcasters, threatened by that, are themselves becoming multimedia players and, and going direct to social networks. And on those social networks, you've got to manage your reputation in, in the knowledge that the media is using the blogosphere as a, as a source of information about what you're doing, some of those sourcing categories that I touched on earlier. Uh, in this world, we say pay for editorial, which is very prevalent in some other parts of the world, uh, carries massive risks, uh, and you need to be prepared for an era of, of pack journalism, uh, journalist hunting as a pack around corporates and their behavior. So we are uh, you know, at the interface of all this, trying to help companies manage their reputations. And, and I don't intend to rehearse all of these, but these are all the different sorts of areas of activity that the people dealing with the media now have to somehow deliver a compelling service for. And this this issue of reputation risk has come right up the agenda. Lots of companies have sophisticated risk policies. Only in the last year or so, or post-VP, has reputation crept into the risk policies. Uh, And some companies now have chief risk officers, and they own the company's reputation. Uh, And so this is, in in the changed media environment, um, uh, is increasingly important. And you can have any amount of uh, competence in all of these areas. But if you're not persuasive communicators, uh, then no amount of media connectivity is going to help you articulate your financial and society story. And, and this issue of the society story is also increasingly coming up the agenda. Because companies can be brilliant financially, true of the mining industry, they have a terrible society story. The oil industry has a good financial story, a terrible society story. Banking hasn't recovered its society story since uh, pre 2008. And so, uh, one of the things companies are increasingly saying, how do we manage our society reputation, uh, even if we're producing stellar numbers? And so, just to end this, what all of this leads to is that we are we are engineers, if you like, of what people now call the reputation economy, and the media is just seen as one part of the reputation economy. And the, we engage with multiple audiences, sometimes through the media, sometimes around the media. You have to manage different international variations and standards in the reputation economy. But at the end of the day, there's, uh, the bottom line is, how do you build and protect uh, the reputation and the image of uh, an entity, a political party, a country, uh, an individual, or a company in an era which is seen to be one where reputations are increasingly fragile? So that's a canter through what we do and how we see the world. And I'd be happy to face any interrogation <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: of any of those things.